0: We're continuing in our series in Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. So if you would put your bulletin or your bulletin insert as a bookmark in Exodus chapter 23 with your Bibles open to our complimentary passage, which is Hebrews chapter 4, in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 10 and continuing in the reading of God's Word. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and to the hearing of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes. Speak to us by your word and spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So the setting is the children of Israel. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Those who first came out of Egypt have all died off because they refused to obey God and enter into the promised land. So God cursed them and he said, Not a one of you except for my servants Joshua and Caleb are going to set foot inside the promised land. They've been wandering 40 years, they've seen their parents die off. The only thing they've ever known is the wilderness journey. And now they're coming into the promised land. Moses gives them their history, the book of the Bible, or the book of the Pentateuch. He begins in Genesis and continues on through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to say this is who you are, this is the people that you are, and this is how you should structure your life in the promised land. The very things that we think are the exciting bits, such as the Red Sea parting, the Nile River turning into blood, All of those are just background information for what the truly exciting bit is, which is the Sinai Covenant. It begins in Exodus chapter 18, continues through the rest of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, up through Numbers chapter 9 and verse 14. For us, we would see this stuff as, oh my goodness, we've just gotten into the weeds. Uh, This is all the details, what possible application does this have to me today? For the Israelites, they're going, this is the meat. This is the, the, the stuff that we need to know. How does the Ten Commandments apply in practical living? What is justice? What is God looking for from his people? And so that's why this huge portion of the story of Israel's exodus centers on these case laws. And we noted as we entered into this portion that this is divided into seven sections. The first is the marriage contract itself, and that's the Ten Commandments. It's set for us in the context of marriage. Exodus chapter 18, God says, I drew you unto myself with the wings of eagles. There's this intimate lover's language. That he uses to describe calling the children of Israel into his holy presence, into his holy mountain. This language of marriage. Later, the New Testament, or the Old Testament writers, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they will refer to Israel's abandonment of God as adultery. They refer to Israel as an adulteress. And you think particularly of Hosea, that's the main message of Hosea, where God tells Hosea, go marry an adulteress, and she's going to cheat on you, and that's going to be my sermon to the people, that just as Gomer is unfaithful to you, Hosea, so Israel is unfaithful to her bridegroom. So... If you're going to commit adultery, there's a prerequisite for that adultery. you got to get married. If you're going to be married, if Israel is married to her spouse, Jehovah God, where did that marriage take place? And it's here at Sinai that the later Old Testament writers refer to Israel in terms of marriage, a marriage union with God, and then obviously later, the faithlessness uh, of Israel towards that marriage. So the Ten Commandments are viewed as a marriage covenant. As I, as, I, as I mentioned way back when, when we began looking at this, if you have this vision in your mind, if you've got this paradigm in your mind, you, I think, can get rid of probably half of the books that are in my library. Uh, you can probably sort through a huge number of, of really thorny issues of the question of is are the Ten Commandments applicable to the church today? Are they applicable to the Christian today? Are we supposed to look to the Ten Commandments in any way, shape, or form? Or is that entirely an Old Testament thing and we just ignore it today? Or, another way of saying it, is were the Ten Commandments... The word is republishing of the covenant of works. The covenant of works given to Adam and Eve in the garden is be perfect, be holy. And if you're not holy, boom, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I will punish you on the day that you are no longer holy. Is that what the Ten Commandments are? Are the Ten Commandments God's republishing of the covenant of works? If so, we should say, thank you, Lord, that I'm not under that covenant any longer. I'm under grace. But if you see it in the context of marriage, if you see it in the context of a marriage relationship, then you're going to say, no, this never was works. This never was about Israel becoming right with God. This was Israel has been drawn into this marriage chamber with God, and God says, this is what I want my bride to look like. So we've got that marriage covenant, which you probably know as the Ten Commandments. That's the first of these seven sections. Also noted, the seven sections that are, begin in Exodus 18 and go through Numbers chapter 9. After the end of each section, there is a theophany which is a long way of saying a visual representation of God. Uh, There is some visual representation of God that occurs at the end of each of these sections uh, that begins in Exodus 18, runs through Numbers chapter 9. After the Ten Commandments, we see thick darkness. That's the visual representation of God. When Moses and Aaron draw near to the thick darkness where God was. We're going to see a visual representation of God after this section. This section is called the Book of the Covenant. And we'll see that later in uh, chapter 24. Uh, It's referenced as the Book of the Covenant. We're closing the Book of the Covenant this morning. And the Book of the Covenant is simply how do these things apply in our relationships with each other. How do they apply in terms of economic justice, in terms of capital cases, uh, in terms of restitution of things that have been lost or stolen, and in terms of how we are to live in relationship to the disadvantaged, to the widow, to the orphan, to the poor? And you'll remember from last week, the emphasis there was on equal justice for all. You shall not take a bribe. You shall not prefer one over another. It's interesting in that passage, it's not merely you shall not prefer uh, the wealthy. The passage also says you shall not prefer the poor. Uh, So in terms of what we in our day know as equitable outcomes, uh, the Scriptures knows nothing of that. The Scripture says you're supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be a level playing field. You're supposed to deal justice without partiality. And so how we engage with each other now comes to the section here at the close of the book of the covenant. The application of these ten words closes with the civic calendar for the children of Israel. How is their year organized? Now, we all know what civic calendars are. We just finished celebrating July the 4th. And presumably, you got together with your neighbors or your friends or your family, and you cooked hamburgers and hot dogs, and you shot fireworks up in the air. Uh, Or you went to see a a fireworks display. Uh, we, We know what civic holidays are. You know about Thanksgiving, and the family's all going to be gathered together at Aunt so-and-so's house or Grandmommy's house, and the kids have to sit at the small table over in the other side of the room, and the adults sit around, and then you watch college football afterwards, and Dad falls asleep in the easy chair. We know about these things. Some of you kids may know right now how many days it is until Christmas. Uh, if you don't know exactly how many days, I bet you've already got some ideas of what you want. Uh, I bet you've already started poking mom and dad a little bit about some things that they might be thinking about for Christmas for you. These are big days for us. These are moments that we structure our lives around. All right, We're all on the same page here. I want to ask you a question. What should Israel's big days be? Think about it. If you are going to establish a calendar for the children of Israel, what would those big days be? It would be when we got delivered from Egypt, right? The day that we crossed through the Red Sea. That's going to be a big day. The day that Pharaoh's army was utterly annihilated. We're going to remember that day. It might be Moses' birthday. He's the great deliverer of Egypt. So when was Moses born? Let's, let's celebrate his birthday each year. It might be the day that God drew us to Mount Sinai. Surely the day in which the giving of the law came. I mean, it's, it's clearly a big event. It, it starts in Exodus chapter 18 and goes through Numbers chapter 9. It's a big event. So this ought to be at the heart of their calendar. These are all legitimate days, and yet all of them have nothing to do with how God says their calendar is going to be organized. So as we look at how this calendar is going to be organized, and I promise we will look at it quickly, (laughs) as we look at how this calendar is organized, It shows us some pretty powerful things about how God wants his people to identify themselves. About how God wants his people to view themselves. The first big day on our calendar is the Sabbath. And first we start out with the Sabbath year. There in uh, verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So that's the command. Six years you sow, and the seventh year you rest and lie fallow. It's an annual, it's a yearly, it's a big picture of the weekly cycle. The six and seven is repeated there in verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh you shall rest. Now, both of these have the exact same basis. Why do you let your land lie fallow? Why do you let your land go on the seventh year? Why do you let it rest? Two reasons given. One is so that you can care for the poor. And the second is so that you can care for the beasts of the field. That's the reason behind the six and seven cycle. Uh, the, the land lying fallow is so that you care for the poor. They can, they can harvest off your land and the animals of the field. The six and seven in terms of the days are the exact same reason. Do you see that in verse 12? Six days you you shall do your work, on the seventh you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Both this annual cycle as well as this weekly cycle are for the purpose of ministering to others and specifically ministering to others that are on the outside the poor the animals the aliens these these people that normally do not get ministered to these are the ones that not just our week is structured around but also this annual cycle is structured around and what What God is doing here, literally, what God is doing is restoring the principle of Eden. Think about that. What should Adam and Eve, what should their relationship have been with the creation? They were called to care for it. They were called to be stewards of the creation. They were called to care for, For the creation that God had placed under their authority. And so now God gives to the redeemed church, to his people, this command essentially to redo it, to to start it again, to focus themselves on caring for these broken elements, for these outside elements, the animals, the beasts of the field, as well as the animals that belong to us. The strangers, the aliens, the slaves, the, these people that are on the outside are part of our mission as the church, caring here for those who are on the outside. And, and I, 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 I want you to come away with that, that central point, <laughs> which is... This Sabbath rest, this Sabbath cycle, is nothing less than recreating Eden. And one of, the, one of the hints of this is the word refreshed. There at the end of verse 12, uh, the son of your servant woman, the alien, may be refreshed. It's a word that only occurs three times uh, in the Old Testament. And one of those other occurrences... Is in Exodus chapter 31, uh, verse 17, where we read, uh, and this is about, well, I'll back up to verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Do you hear that word? And do you hear how God is connecting His activity of work, rest, and refreshment with our activity of work, rest, but who is it that's refreshed? It's not you. It's not the person who keeps the Sabbath. The refreshment is the one who's on the outside. The refreshment is the animal, the son of the slave woman, the alien. That's the refreshed one. And so, beloved, the point that I'm wanting to get to here in, in, in just the beauty of this cycle and how God not only He wants our week structured by it, but he wants our annual calendars structured by it. The six and seven years. Is that you and I are reflecting God in this cycle of our life? That's what our life is. Now Paul will later say that your life is hidden with Christ in God, and that's what we're seeing in a in a in a more in a more clouded form here. We're, we're seeing that same principle in, in a more clouded way to be hidden with Christ in God, to live out God's mission on a weekly basis and then again with these cycles of the years of productivity and fallowness. And then there are these three feast days that are given to us. These these three feast days are, are, are really beautiful. The the three feast days, verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. The first is the feast of unleavened bread. The second is the feast of the harvests, uh, and that is uh, in verse 16. And then later in verse 16 is also the feast of ingathering. So these three feasts are to mark the calendar of the Israelites. The feast of the harvest, a uh, feast of unleavened bread, uh, feast of harvest, and then feast of ingathering. Now, the feast of unleavened bread we've already seen. That was back in Exodus chapter thirteen, the, where where they're called to keep the feast of unleavened bread. And I'm not going to I'm not going to really re preach all of that, but I want you to take away the the essence of that feast of unleavened bread that feast of unleavened bread is a feast of personal commitment to holiness that's the point of getting rid of all the leaven that's in the house of being so careful about this it's a week-long feast any corrupt influence anything that would corrupt that 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 the 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 example of leaven is used throughout the scripture both positively and negatively. Uh, so, so leaven in and of itself is not a sinful thing. Sometimes leaven is used as a positive thing. He said, where, where Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like a lump of yeast, which, or uh, a bit of leaven which, which uh, the baker places inside the dough and it leavens the entire lump. And that's basically saying in the same way you and I have an effect on the society around us. You and I have an effect on on the communities that we are in by our Christian testimony. In the same way that leaven affects the entire lump of dough. Now, Jesus is not preaching against bread. Uh, he's not saying that leaven is a wicked, sinful thing. He's saying this is the effect of leaven, this tiny little thing that has this great effect far outside its... Uh, you know, what you would think of looking at it uh, in terms of its size relationship. So there is an example of leaven being a positive thing. And then obviously in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven is seen as a sinful thing. And the same principle abides. That is, tolerate any sin. Pick a sin. Label it a minor one. And tolerate it. You know, what does God really care about how I spend my time on the internet. I'm not doing anything against my wife. Nobody's watching. I'm not doing anything public. What do I care? What does God care? God says, your life should be an unleavened life. (laughs) Absolutely, this little sin that you think you can hide, that you think can be set apart, from, from all the other stuff, it will change the way that you view ladies. It will change the way that you view yourself. It will change the way that you view what the purpose of marriage is. Absolutely, that little bit of sin is going to infect everything. And it's true wherever we are. I mean, the, the sin of backbiting or... Or the the sin of of constantly being negative about another person. It's it's interesting how uh, I, years and years ago, my wife and I were very very close friends with another couple, and that other couple, we spent time in each other's homes. We were we were extremely close. We went to the same church together, and we found ourselves in a place where Every time that we left their house or they left our house, we started griping about them. We started complaining about them. He is overbearing in this way. She's opinionated in this way. Did you see what their kids did? And we found ourselves in this cycle of of griping about this couple that we supposedly were best friends with. And by God's grace... We kind of nipped that in the bud and we said, listen, let's make a commitment. For 30 days, every time we speak about this couple, we're going to commit to saying something nice. We are not going to say anything bad about them for 30 days. We're going to hold each other accountable to it. And for 30 days, we're just going to say good things about this couple. And you would be amazed at the end of a month how much that family had changed. They, they, were, they were transformed. They were different people. They had no idea that they had changed. Uh, Obviously, it was me. It was me that had changed. And it was me that had changed because that little bit of leaven, that little bit of of ugliness, that little bit of, of criticism had infected me. And it had infected the way that I interacted with this dear couple. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. It's a national desire to be reflecting God in His holiness. We could put it in today's context. We could say it's a desire to be Christ-like. That's the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second feast that is mentioned here is the Feast of Harvest in verse 16. Uh, chapter 34 calls it the Feast of Weeks. The Greeks referred to this feast as Pentecost. And all of a sudden, do you start seeing some of the glorious spiritual reality of the, of the feast? The harvest, the first fruit of the harvest, is the harvest. It's a picture of the harvest that Jesus Christ is bringing in of people of every tongue and tribe and nation. That's what happens at Pentecost. At Pentecost is when you see the first fruits of the harvest of people coming in to God. It's a, the, the children of Israel on an annual basis are reenacting the promise of the gospel without even realizing it. They didn't know. But God did. And I want you to think about that for a moment about the things in your own life and my own life that God calls us to do. And you might not even realize how God is making this part of His glorious presentation of the gospel. It, the, the, the Feast of Harvest is Yahweh saying, I've provided the harvest. The harvest has come in, I'm the one who gave the harvest, and you are to give me thanks for it. And then when we spin it up into its spiritual significance in Pentecost, what does that tell us about evangelism? What does that tell us about how we engage with the world? It's God who brings the harvest. And our response is to be thankful third and final feast that's mentioned here is this feast of the end gathering. It's at the end of the harvest season. This feast is later called the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. Uh, and, and this is a harvest that ta- or a, a feast that takes place at the end of the harvest. And the point of the feast of end uh, gathering uh, or the feast of tabernacles is is that from the very beginning of the harvest to the very end of the harvest, all of it is what God provides. And we give him thanks for all of it from the beginning to the end. But then you and I find ourselves living in between Pentecost and that final end gathering. You and I find our lives in between these two great moments. So to bring it to a close, all of these feasts, all of these markers of Israel's year, Israel's calendar, the weekly markers, the annual markers, the seven-year cycle, all of these remind the children of Israel of God's presence and His active care for them. But what happened? Didn't they just become formulaic? Didn't we just start to invent extra things that you can or cannot do, should or should not do, and doing the routine and going through the road? I can tell you, growing up as a child, my vision, my impression of Sunday was it was the worst day of the week because I had to sit through morning church, I had to sit through evening church and then mom and dad took naps all afternoon and all I knew was I was not allowed to ride my bicycle. I couldn't climb trees and I couldn't make a lot of noise because that would disturb mom and dad with their naps. Now, that was my problem. It wasn't mom and dad's problem. It was not their fault at all. But it shows how we can take something that God gives to us as a gift and we can turn it sour. By, by not looking at it the way that God gave it to us. This is a, 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 an invitation for you and I to live our lives in reflection of God's cycle of work and rest. It also is an encouragement. As you shape your week, as you shape your year, as you shape this every seven-year cycle... It's an encouragement to live in a constant awareness that our lives are to reflect God. To let these circumstances, let these rituals shape us in that way. That our lives are to reflect God. That's the purpose of the Israelite calendar. That's the purpose of these verses in this text. This book of the covenant begins and ends. Now, there's a couple of other little things that are thrown in here that you shall not boil a goat, a young goat in its mother's milk is probably something that you would think, where did that come from? Uh, It's actually a Canaanite fertility ritual, uh, and there are plenty of evidences of of ancient cultures that, that practice this as a as a fertility ritual. Uh, and God is basically saying, listen, you don't play with that stuff. Earlier he says, don't even let the names of other gods appear on your lips. It is I who give you children. Uh, not your rituals and, and certainly not any of the other gods. But it is a call to perfect consecration. Perfectly being set apart to God. And reflecting him in what we do. So my encouragement to you this morning is to let your week, let your Sabbath day, but also let the cycles of your life be consciously and intentionally reflecting God, seeking to come back to the garden and what God has called us to do, seeking to be that means of refreshment to others. It's not a way of salvation. The children of Israel were never saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. They were saved by God's outstretched hand. It is a way of thanksgiving. It is a way to say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done for me. And I want my life to reflect and glorify you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these simple instructions that you give, as if to little children, for how we may structure our lives to better reflect you. Help us, Father, to do so in Christ's name. Amen.